This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. I am your host, Trevor Williams. And today on the show, we are talking with Alex Clark. So Alex is a farmer and rancher in Colorado, she and her husband have cows, they've got some row crops, but specifically, we're going to be talking today with Alex about their hemp production. So back in 2017, 2018, whenever the Farm Bill came out, which made hemp production legal here in the U.S. and in a bunch of different states, you know, like Colorado, California, they all have different um, laws and stuff with hemp and medical marijuana and all that stuff. But anyway, Alex and her husband were kind of trailblazers when it came to hemp production in Colorado. And Alex is going to tell us what that whole experience was like, how they went from no hemp production to a lot of hemp production, misinformation that they were getting from people that were telling them they should go into hemp, kind of what the feedback was um, from farmers and people in their community that some thought they shouldn't be growing hemp, some thought they should. So Alex is using... Um, her platform on Instagram, on Facebook, which on Instagram, she is the hemp farmer's wife. Um, that's how I found her. She's got a lot of really great content on there about educating people what hemp production is, how CBD is helpful and how kind of what the industry is doing. Because as Alex will say in the podcast, it's kind of a new era. Like we don't know, we don't know the perfect ways on how to market hemp, how to do it perfectly. So they're all trying to figure it out. And I didn't know this, but apparently to be legal hemp for hemp production for CBD products, it's got to be 0.3% THC. And if it's above that, the USDA will come out and check it. And if it's above 0.3%, then guess what? They've got to destroy their entire crops, which, you know, isn't good. So yeah, there's a lot of laws, a lot of regulations in it, and it was super helpful to learn all this from Alex. So I think you'll enjoy this episode. It was super fun to interview her. Um... And also, I've been thinking of ways to get you all, all the listeners, if you are curious, if you want to email me about possible topics or anything, in the description for this episode, you will see a link. And that link is solo.to, I believe. Um, yeah, it's solo.to slash farm traveler. And that will take you to our little um, website, which will really link you to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the website. And under the title, you'll see email. And, you know, you can click that and you'll send me an email. Send me any information um, on topics you want to learn about. Maybe you want to come on the show to learn something. Or, you know, just drop a line. Let me know where you're listening from. I would really appreciate it. Um, So, yeah, I can't wait to hear from you all. And I can't wait for you to listen to this interview with Alex. Learn a lot about hemp production. And I think you will, too. Again, this is episode 96, so close to 100, with Alex Clark. Hope you enjoy it. All right. Well, Alex Clark, welcome to the Farm Traveler Podcast. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to talk with you. So 
you have got a farm, you grow row crops, you grow hemp, which we'll talk about in a little bit. I'm super excited to learn more about that. So, but before we dive in, kind of tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your background. Yeah, so um, I'm Alex Clark. I make my life here in Grand Junction, Colorado, although I was born and raised in Peoria, Illinois. So um, a, a very different upbringing from the life I'm living now. I guess I consider myself a city girl at heart. Um, you know, while I grew up occasionally riding horses, for the most part, we, we didn't have our hands in the dirt at all. Um, I went to Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas for college. So that's when I left Peoria and mm. spent four years in college in San Antonio and just grew to love Texas and, and love my university. And um, Texas is such a diverse state. I really got to enjoy so many experiences that aren't just, they just aren't available to us in Illinois. So um, it was there that I met my husband, Wacey Clark. And he is a cowboy from Colorado. Um, never expected that I would end up marrying a cowboy from Colorado, but that's what happened. <laughs> um, and it was it was something that I guess, you know, I just kind of chalk it up to fate and destiny. And it was our sophomore year of college that Wacy first brought me home to Grand Junction for a visit with him. Um, it was during spring break, during calving season. There was just so much going on around his home and the ranch. And my eyes were open to things that I didn't even know existed. Um, you know, I certainly had never seen a calf born. Um, I didn't even know, you know, what ranchers really did. I understood they were beef producers, but I didn't know anything about that process. And so my eyes were open to so much and I fell in love with that Western way of life. Um, while Colorado is a pretty progressive state on the Western side of the state, the, the kind of cowboy culture or Western lifestyle is, is very much alive and thriving. And so I just, um, you know, I was enamored with him and I was enamored with his lifestyle. Uh, so in 2005 is when we graduated and rather than moving into Dallas or back home to Illinois to Chicago, I moved out West and I guess I haven't looked back since. It's been a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's, you know, I'm probably one of the least likely people that I think my friends growing up would have expected to kind of turn my back on, on what maybe the city had to offer me. But like I said, it was, it, my eyes were just open to so much and I wanted to learn more. I I'm kind of an adventure seeker in that way. I love being outdoors and I love animals. And, um, I, while it was a cult culture shock at first moving to Grand Junction, it didn't take me too long to kind of realize that it, it's just a great lifestyle. Um, I, I certainly love where I grew up and I'm happy to go back and visit. My folks still live there to this day, but I can't imagine now living anywhere else. Uh, so I quickly found myself on the ranch. <laughs> That's some Illinois to Texas to Colorado to ranch life. That's pretty cool. Yes. And at the time, you know, ranch life, I didn't know anything about it. So I was just trying to find my place in the family and, and feel like I, you know, contributed to, to our work. Um, in addition to ranching, uh, my in-laws and, and Wacy's family own and run a construction business. So again, very different from anything I knew. And I, I knew that I wanted to be a part of it. I didn't, I, you know, I chased my own kind of career ambitions early on, but I quickly realized that such a strict schedule was really hard for me to assimilate into the family and, and the family businesses when, um, you know, I had such a rigid schedule, whereas, you know, in farming and ranching, you might think your schedule is set in stone, but it changes daily. And, and sometimes by the minute. So I, I felt like I was missing out on a lot of the fun. And um, it, it was only a couple of years into our marriage. And when we had our children that I decided, all right, I have no choice but to jump in head first. So let's do this thing. And I guess I was kind of like, you know, I think most people know who the pioneer woman is. Um, and I, I absolutely identify with her story because the, I found myself <laughs> in that same spot. So 
It was um, in, let's see. So my firstborn was in 20 or 2008. And that's when I realized, okay, I make a pretty crummy cowgirl. I've, you know, got to find other ways to contribute. And, and so maybe a couple of years past that is when I realized I can help with the construction business. I can help with the ranch, maybe not as a cowgirl, but I can keep records and I can keep the cowboys well fed. And while some people think that that role might not be important, I think they would disagree and say that it might be one of the more important roles on the ranch. Um, so while I'm, I'm no expert in beef production, um, you know, I, I'm still learning to this day as we go. Um, but that's really how I got started kind of out West and, and, and made my place in the family and in our businesses. Yeah, that, that sounds like it was a huge adjustment. I mean, you're not only getting used to the ranch life. I mean, you're also a mom, you're helping out with the ranch or helping out the, with the construction business. So it seems like there was a lot going on. So, I mean, did you find like a system, like, I don't know, like pr productivity systems always fascinate me. So did you find some sort of system of scheduling and organizing that kind of helped you juggle all of those um, kind of ideas with that helped you kind of fulfill those as, as best as you could? I tried my best, uh, but I will say, you know, the way the way our ranch and, and operations and the outfit in general works, um, as much organization and structure I try to bring to it, um, it, I've got to be ready for things to change daily. And that starts, you know, with the construction business. You're not always at the mercy of your own schedule. So um, I tried to bring a little bit of structure and order. I think, you know, with young kids in the house, that's fairly easy because when it's nap time, it doesn't matter what's going on at work. It was my job to get the kids home to nap. Um, but I, I guess I say it jokingly, but it, it's, it's almost so funny. It's not <laughs> that the structure and the order and the schedule, I've just learned to let go a little bit um, when it comes to that kind of control. I like that. That's a good point. I mean, I always hear anytime I try to schedule out my day and be productive, I always think about the um, the quote. I can't remember who said it, but it's um, if you planning is essential, but most plans fail. I mean, you've got to plan, but I mean, you've got to also be able to adapt and know that, you know, your schedule is not going to be 100 percent perfect. Things are going to pop up, which I'm sure in your case, things pop up all the time, whether that's on the ranch or those construction businesses and stuff like that. Um so, yeah, when we were talking back and forth, you have the construction company, irrigation company, and also reclamation with the oil fields. Can you explain that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, the oil industry, the oil and gas industry kind of goes through like a boom bust cycle over the years. And in our community specifically, they've felt that over the decades even. Um, so when we graduated from college, my husband came back, started, you know, having more of a hand in Clark and Company, which is the construction business. And I guess at that time we were in a boom and he saw a need for reclamation in the oil field. So what that means is when a pump pulls out or when when a crew leaves, we go back in and make it look native again and we will plant native seed. Um, using a variety of methods, typically it's hydro seeding, and we make the earth look like it was untouched. Um, so, you know, believe what you want about the oil and gas industry. Um, you know, our community relies on it economically, um, but we take a lot of pride in going in and, and making it look like no one was there. And in some cases, we're even able to make it look better than it did before and, you know, make it better habitat for the wildlife. And, you know, if you've been to Colorado, you know, we're pretty blessed with our topography. It's, I think, one of the most beautiful places in the world, the Rocky Mountains. And so um, the the thought that we get to go in and, and you know, preserve the, the habitat for wildlife is, is really important to us, not just as um, locals in Colorado, but, you know, we're also hunters and fishers. And so we we really care about the environment, I think, more than people would assume as oil and gas supporters or as hunters. That's a good point. Where would you say most of those oil fields are located? Are they in fields? Are they kind of in the mountains? I mean, do they kind of vary? It varies. Um, where we do a lot of our reclamation is in the high country. So we'll go 
very far off of any paved roads on dirt roads and, you know, where their lane pipeline or, or whatever it may be. And um, we'll go shoot with, you know, seed and tachyphyra and mulch. And, um, you know, by the, our goal is by the time we're, we're out of there, there's no sign of any dirt roads that might've been laid while the gas companies were there. Gotcha. Okay. That's neat. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some stuff recently on YouTube and Facebook about people closing old oil fields and stuff like that. So that's very neat. I mean, I think that's cool. I mean, you use oil, you get oil, and then you guys go in and kind of make it look like nothing was there. So that's really cool. I like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talking about your farm, you have your cow-calf operation, you've got some row crops, you've got hay, you've got hemp. So tell us a background about the farm and then what kind of started that whole process of you guys going to hemp a few years ago? Sure. So um, my father-in-law and mother-in-law were really the ones that started, um, you know, the family's op- cattle operation. So we, we do run a cow-calf operation all through the Western Slope um, on owned ground and leased ground, also on some public ground, uh, BLM. And that is something that they've enjoyed my hus- almost my husband's whole life. I think he was probably a young boy when they first started their herd. Um, so as he was being raised, his hands were always in the dirt. You know, they also farm corn and hay for feed. So he understands soil. He understands water. And while his formal education might not be in soil sciences or agronomy or agri-science, he, um, you know, he has hands-on, he was raised that way. And so when he came home from um, Trinity University, he realized that that's what his passion is. Um, You know, I think all of us just want to retire cowboys one day. I certainly do. You know, it's, (laughs) it's, it's as romantic and wonderful as it sounds. Um, But so they've always kind of diversified with the construction, with the ranch. And um, it was in 2016 that Tanner Willis, a mutual friend of ours, came to us and said, hey, I understand you own some land. I'm not sure if you're familiar with industrial hemp farming. It's, you know, at that time, it was still very new in our state of Colorado and um, and very new everywhere actually at that time i think it was just colorado first and then maybe a couple just a couple states to follow where it was even legal to grow industrial hemp so tanner brought to Mm -hmm. us an opportunity and a skill set that we didn't have um, as a crossover from the marijuana industry he understood things about the plant already that we didn't know we'd never grown that stuff so um, it was kind of a good meeting of the minds and Wacy came home to me and said, hey, I think let's be hemp farmers. Let's give it a shot. You know, let's just see what we can do. It's so new. There's not a lot of competition. There seems to be a market for this stuff. Um, you know, but we were smart enough to know that it was it, it was new. And we, we really only gambled what we were willing to lose. Um, I think that's where some hemp farmers go wrong. They just gamble too much on the opportunity. Mm-hmm. But it was absolutely an opportunity. So we took it by the horns and we, um, that first year, I think farmed like 40 acres of industrial hemp, which sounds like a lot, but I'll say, you know, we didn't have perfect yields on all 40 acres. We were learning a lot (laughs) as we went. Um, so that's how we got started. Um, I'll say I kicked and screamed for the first few years. I did not, I wasn't excited by the opportunity, you know, even before we started farming hemp, we had so many irons in the fire. We work year round so hard and I feel like we're constantly pivoting and, you know, you fix one problem and then up comes another. And, and so I was really terrified at the idea of, you know, kind of entering on uncharted waters, but I'll say it, it's brought blessings to our lives that I, even in my wildest dreams, couldn't have even hoped for. So, um, you know, I was slow to come around, but I think by about 2018 is when I really saw that, yes, there is a future for this in our family. And it feels good knowing that we're working so hard to do something that's bigger than ourselves and, and for others. 
um, that's important to me because it it's, you know, farming isn't easy. It doesn't matter what you're farming, even if it's something like corn or soybeans where the playbook's pretty much written already. Um, you know, every year brings new challenges, of course, because there's some variables out of your control as a farmer. But for the most part, you can kind of bank on certain yields year to year. And with hemp, we didn't have that comfort at first, especially still to this day, we don't have very much comfort. But um, <laughs> so farming's not easy. And they say hemp ain't easy either. So I'm here to attest to that. Um, it was it was a wild ride. We had so many wild things happen in the early years because let's remember the public, they didn't know much about industrial hemp either. It was all very new. So when you're driving down a road and you see what looks like a field of marijuana, we had so many looky-loos. Um, we, we quickly found ourselves targets. And, um, you know, we had plants jerked out of the ground on fence lines. I think people assumed it was pot. Now, now especially in our community, because, you know, we are very much kind of a hemp epicenter there's a lot of hemp farmers around here and a lot of fields. They understand that, um, you know, it's very much illegal <laughs> to grow marijuana in that fashion. So they know that it's industrial hemp now. But early on, uh, it, it certainly brought challenges that I, I couldn't foresee, even in my pessimistic view at that time. So <laughs> I can imagine. I, I, I can't believe people driving by, I mean, just ripping out hemp plants. I mean, I'm sure because, I mean, they look exactly like a like a regular pot plant, but I'm sure they were like, wait a minute, that's a whole field. Let me go steal a plant. And I mean, that's absolutely crazy. Yeah. I mean, it looks like and smells like. So it doesn't <laughs> take much. You know, you're just driving down the road with your windows down and, and you get a whiff of that. You know, it's not always quite as strong the scent, but um, especially if you're familiar with that smell, you can recognize it driving down the road. So, um, and, and, and I think too, people, people assumed that it was shady business because there wasn't mm -hmm. this track record of good, reliable, ethical people standing up for our industry. Um, you know, there were plenty of them, but no one knew who to trust. No one knew who to believe. To the farmers, there were a lot of people throwing out these ridiculous numbers, you know, making claims that you're going to make $100,000 an acre. So I think some farmers jumped on that so fast because they heard that number and they thought, well, shoot, you know, why would I grow hops, which at that time was becoming very saturated? You know, why would I grow hops? I can grow hemp. You know, I can grow anything and they can, but it, it's, it's not as simple as that. Otherwise we'd all be doing it. So it's, um, it was quite the evolution and I'm thankful that we were kind of early into the market. I think those lessons learned and, and I don't want to downplay the fact that we learned them the hard way. You know, we didn't start off experts. And it was, it was easy to really get down on ourselves. Um, you know, thank, I'm so thankful for my husband's forward thinking and his steadfastness and entrepreneurial spirit, but I was the naysayer in the room much of the time. Um, but now, thankfully, I can look back on those years and, and say, gosh, it actually was a blessing because now we still get to be here today farming hemp. And there's a lot of hemp farmers that, that just simply... Um, Either they ran out of money or they ran out of gumption and, and, and want to. And, um, you know, for them, I'm not saying that's a bad thing for them. Maybe that was the right thing that needed to happen in their outfit. But for us, it's it's I can say now <laughs> that it's a good thing. It's a good thing. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Did you have any farmers kind of whether it's locally or around the country kind of I don't know seeing what you're doing and like, why would you ever grow hemp? Like, that's not right. Did you have anybody that wasn't supportive of it? 
We did. You know, people very close to us, they were supportive of us. And I think they would have been no matter what we do with our time. You know, that's the benefit of living in a smaller community is we're all kind of cheerleaders for one another. But there were definitely farmers that were cautious to lend their support. Um, But I'll say, you know, they probably had some opinions, but we were we didn't hear too much negativity from other people, but I know it existed because while we might not, mm-hmm. you know, know those those naysayers personally, we absolutely encountered them at um, different trade expos and and um, you know, different agricultural shows that we would go to. But I guess, you know, the way the way we do business out West, even in the construction business, a lot of times business is done on a handshake still, still to this day. Mm. And in the hemp world, it's not that way at all. Uh, We might've been naive to have thought that in the beginning, um, but we made sure we covered our bases and and we made sure that we took our time to really do things the right way the first time. And so because of that, I think we had a lot of supporters. Whereas if we were just being careless with our work and, and you know, making crazy claims about the money involved, uh, you know, baseless claims, they probably would have been a little more critical. But we've always been really transparent and honest and we're good people. You know, we know who we are in business and personally. And I think that confidence kind of, puts the nays keeps those naysayers quiet. Well, that's good. Whatever works. Um, so take us through the whole hemp production process. So what does it take to plant them? How long does it take to, for them to grow? And then how exactly do you harvest the CBD oil from them? Yes. So, um, first of all, industrial hemp is, it is a cannabis plant. It is a cousin to, I guess, to marijuana. So, um, it is defined by the THC level. And that THC level must be under 0.3% currently. Uh, There's a lot of calls for that to be raised to 1%. um, But currently, the legislation um, set by the federal government, uh, I believe, um, what is it, starting with the 2014, but then the 2018 Farm Bill. um, So we grow industrial hemp for the purpose of extracting its derivatives. Those derivatives are within the flower. Um, There's also industrial hemp genetics grown more specifically for fiber or the herd. The herd is the innermost core of the stock. And there's lots of great things being done with that. Um, There's hempcrete, there's like versions of hemp plastics, um, wood, furniture, building materials, you name it. Um, But specifically, we grow for the CBD and the other minor cannabinoids found within the flower. So we typically plant either from seed or from clones that have been started in, you know, uh, small trays, and then we up pot them into 50s and and then on from there. Um, So we do a variety of plantings and every year it changes. It's, it's, it's constantly changing based on demand. So I don't want to say we, we only use, you know, um, we only plant from seed because we definitely do live plantings as well. So very similar to other vegetables. Um, We'll go in with a field crew, we'll live plant and, um, and kind of do the whole the whole shebang that you might visualize tomato plants being planted or um, oh, any other veggie really. Um, we plant in mid May typically, and then we'll harvest in mid September. Um, that time in between is is critical to the plant because we're constantly watching that THC level. As soon as it comes over 0.3%, it's considered hot. In my state, we're regulated by the Colorado Department of Agriculture, and we're actually subject to random testing throughout the grow season. So um, that time we are we're weeding, the weeding is so labor intensive. Um, as the years go on, the machinery is start and the implements that are needed um, to kind of automate some of this stuff. It's, it's, it's more readily available now than ever in the beginning. It was so hands-on 
um, because at the time there was no machinery. There was no one implement that was perfectly built to this crop. Um, something kind of neat is our farm was, we, we helped a lot of those um, companies kind of retrofit different implements needed. And it was, it was neat to have a hand in, in that process and that development. Um, so we watched the weed, we watched the different predators. Um, you know, we always make sure that we use only, um, additives approved by the Colorado department of agriculture on the approved pesticide list. Um, we do farm conventionally. There are organic hemp growers as well. Um, but you know, we use organic principles in everything that we do. We're just not certified. Um, and once that THC level gets, you know, near that 0.3%, we're also looking for the other minor cannabinoids, CBD specifically. But as the science continues to study those other minors, we're looking at CBG, CBN, et cetera, et cetera, and on down the list. So, um, you know, you want as much CBD out of that flower as possible. Um, and so it's kind of a guess and test. When do you harvest? If you go too long, you run the risk of spiking that THC level. Um, so mm. we start harvesting and like I said, mid-September and into October, depending on all kinds of things, weather, but especially that THC. And then we use a different, a couple different harvesting techniques, um, you know, depending on what the need is. What are we going to do with it from there? That will kind of dictate how it's harvested. If we can afford to go in with a combine and, you know, chop it up, we, we will do that. But we do know that we lose a little bit of the cannabinoids when we, when we do that. So sometimes if it's really fancy flour that we're harvesting or, or needing, we'll go in and, and it's almost like a Christmas tree farm. You know, we'll go in, chop it off at the stock and then hang dry. Um, so once it's out of the ground, drying is important. Um, hang drying is great because, you know, you leave so much intact and your yields are going to be higher, but that's really hard to do on a hundred acres. <laughs> so um, we'll <laughs> go bet. in and something kind of neat, you'll think this is cool. So like I said, there, uh, there really was not a lot of machinery built specifically for this crop at that time when we started. And we were just looking, how can we improve our efficiencies and how can we improve our yields all at the same time? Well, we ended up, uh, I think it was 2019, we paired up with some peanut farmers in Texas and went down and brought home a caravan of peanut dryers to the hemp fields and, and dried hemp in peanut dryers. And you, you know, you hear people say, not my circus, not my monkeys or not my monkeys, not my circus. Yeah. Um, you should have seen those things coming down the road into the farm. It was, I thought, <laughs> oh boy, now we really look like the circus. Cause they look like circus carts just being hauled. <laughs> So um, we will dry the flour that way. Uh, we also borrowed from the chili industry in New Mexico, and we purchased and brought home a enormous chili dryer. And I thought that was pretty cool because I'm a big fan of green chili and red chili. But um, <laughs> we, you know, you need to dry the hemp to get it to a moisture level of under 10%. And, um, you know, mm -hmm. those were some methods that we have used historically to, to do that. From there, depending on where the hemp is going and, and what the specs are required by the processors and extractors, um, you might go through some kind of a homogenation process to, you know, remove those, uh, any weeds that might, might have been picked up, any, you know, large stems, stalk. And then um, from there, the flour is bagged into super sacks and hauled off to extractors. And, um, you know, we don't extract ourselves. So all of our hemp is, is extracted by different companies that we have close relationships with. And um, they will extract it. And the oil can be taken into a couple different forms. 
either, you know, you have your hemp or your CBD isolate. So where they actually isolate the CBD molecules, um, they'll make distillate, they'll make crude oil. Um, so, you know, I'm no expert on the extraction side of things. We absolutely rely on, on our expert partners for that. Um, but that oil or those extracts are then what are put into what consumers will find now as CBD products. Gotcha. That's, that's so cool that, I mean, you guys are kind of at the forefront of doing all this hemp since you did it whenever it first, I mean, really became legal. And so you're having to borrow from the peanut industry, the chili industry, kind of just figuring out whatever works for you. And I didn't know, I thought that the THC levels would just stay constant. So I didn't know that they actually fluctuate. So that's, I mean, what would happen if um, you said it's got to be 0.3%, what would happen if somebody came and inspected it and it was 1%? I mean, would you have to destroy the entire crop or would it have to come back later on and evaluate it? What would happen there? Yes. So once a field test hot, um, currently, I believe the rules have not changed yet that the uh, Colorado Department of Agriculture will require you to destroy that crop. Um, I believe now there's some leeway and it might be all the way up to 0.39 at this time where if you can prove to them how you're going to use that harvest, um, I think there's some leeway today, but anything over that must be destroyed. And, you know, it absolutely happens and it, um, it's not a happy, <laughs> it's not a happy thing. I mean, imagine a corn farmer being told his entire field is out of compliance and you, you know, you got to destroy it. I wouldn't ever want to be in that situation. Yeah. That's a lot of money you would lose. And I mean, you'd probably have to wait an entire growing season to replant and then hopefully get back any sort of money. So, I mean, that's a very good point. So you mentioned also in our emails that you're having Utah state um, study the genetics of your plants. So what's that whole process been like? Yes. So that's something we're really proud of and excited about. Um, Dr. Bruce Bugby of Utah State University, who is a widely known and respected doctor um, who's, you know, I'll, I'll probably get this wrong, but I want to give credit where credit's due. He has worked with NASA studying farming um, in outer space. <laughs> so uh, oh, cool. I just think that's so neat. Um, so he's, he's a brilliant mind and through, um, Brian Gold at Pinea Greenhouses in Utah and Dr. Bruce Bugby and then my husband, Wacey have gotten together and we are studying, um, different genetics that we provided to the university in their controlled, in their controlled studies. And we are trying to identify stable genetics that will, stay as, you know, get the, that THC level as low as possible without sacrificing higher CBD yields and the other minor cannabinoids. So we've committed to years of studies with them. And, um, you know, it's, it's exciting to know that we have a hand in driving our industry forward with, um, you know, good things in mind and, 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 and good things, meaning, we want to help more people and we want to help more animals that ultimately what we farm goes on and, and into bottles to help others with, through alternative medicine. Um, you know, that's what all this hard work is for because we absolutely believe in the plant, but we also understand that there's a lot of roadblocks in our way, specifically because of our country's kind of concern over THC and the, the psychotropic effects of it. So um, you know, it'd be, it'd be easier for us if we could just throw caution to the wind and, and just say, oh, you know, THC, you shouldn't be afraid of it, you know? And, and while we might believe that we also see that our industry can't move forward without a responsible look at how we can keep THC low in what we grow. That's a good point. And I mean, yeah, usually farmers have just been feeding people, I mean, since the dawn of agriculture, but now thanks to THC, we're also healing people with, I mean, using this instead of harsh um, or harsh medicines and stuff like that. So it's very interesting to see where this goes and kind of going off of that. What do you see as the future? Do you think more people are going to be doing hemp um, production or do you think government regulations are going to be a little bit more lax in the future? What do you think? Well, I think... Um, 
I think our industry is still stabilizing. Mm -hmm. I don't consider it stable yet. In fact, in 2019 and carrying into 2020 growth seasons, there was a massive oversupply of industrial hemp grown for CBD. Um, you mm. know, there was enough grown in our country to supply the world a couple times over. So, um, and and it and and that's that's a problem. <laughs> so, we you know we're definitely backing off of what how much acreage we're planting in 2021. Um, it's not a bad thing for us because it gives us a chance to kind of hone in on our SOPs, kind of gear up for what's to come. So I think what's to come is um, a couple things. I think the government, federal and local governments, are going to continue to take a close look at their comfort level and, and how they see a place for both medicinal and recreational marijuana in the marketplace. Um, I think that will kind of kind of move into the hemp space as people become more comfortable with THC and its presence in our society, then, you know, it gives us hemp farmers a little more wiggle room or a little more elbow room. So there's already, in fact, I just read today on Hemp Industries um, Association Daily, there's a lot of states now calling for that 0.3% THC level to be raised to one full percent. And, um, you know, the federal government has heard calls for it, but they've always said, we can't do this on our own. You know, we need the states behind it too, because ultimately, you know, we're the boots on the ground in the states. So they, um, I think when that THC level is, is raised, it will help us hemp farmers because we'll be able to be more productive. We'll be able to be more efficient with our crops because as that THC, as that THC threshold is raised, up goes our CBD and the other minor cannabinoids because we're not so terrified of spiking too high and having an out of compliance field that's considered hot. So um, that's gonna be where a lot of the legislation and, and microscope is. Um, I think the FDA is going to have, they already have their work cut out for them. We're, we're waiting for them, you know, asking for maximum daily dosages. So CBD products can be better regulated, you know, as a conservative person, I consider myself pretty conservative. Um, it, people might be surprised to understand that we are calling for more regulation when we typically don't as conservatives, but we need it. We need <laughs> the true, FDA yeah. to set maximum daily dosages so we can move this industry forward and, and squeeze out the bad guys, squeeze out the bad actors. Um, as the years go on, they, they become fewer and fewer, but they're still there and it hurts our industry. So that's a big passion of mine is, is not just the farming side of things, but then what, what are we doing on the consumer product side and, and this alternative medicine? Because whether the FDA likes it or not, it's readily available now and more and more people are turning to it for alternative medicine. And, um, you know, we need to, we need to protect the consumers because of, if we don't, if we don't do that and, and we don't put our eggs into that basket, people will get hurt. There's still out of compliance products on in the marketplace and they're not hard to find. And those brands are, they, the brands recognize um, the public's, I guess, ignorance to, to what, what even is a compliant CBD product. They, all they hear is, is how it can help them in ways that, um, you know, maybe prescription medication can, and they'd much rather take a CBD product than take five, you know, five tabs of ibuprofen. So we've, we've got to find a way to protect consumers, but we've also got to keep the farmers in mind because ultimately it starts with the plant. That's true. And that's a very good point. So if they move to um, a minimum of 1%, would you guys have to get a new variety of, of hemp plants or could you make do with the ones you have? How would that work? I don't, I mean, we could, but I think what would happen is that that growth season would just change. Hmm. Um, we'd be able to let the plants go a little longer because they continue to produce um, and, and raise, you know, increase the cannabinoid levels as, as the flower continues to develop, as long as you're growing it, 
well. Um, I'm sure there are varieties out there, though, that we could probably explore that have higher amounts of THC, but also higher amounts of the other miners. Um, so that's something that we are already thinking about. I'm just not as well versed in it because I don't work specifically with our genetics program and our breeding program, but we do breed our own plants for seed and for clones for ourselves, of course, but then we also sell some to the marketplace with our close contacts. Gotcha. Um, so COVID's still going on. I, I think it's been like almost a year since we've had it here in the U.S. Um, how has that impacted you guys in the industry as a whole? It's made things hard. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. Simply the calls, you know, by our state governments to lessen, you know, traffic flow in, in the workplace has made things hard. We're fortunate enough that we're small enough that, that it was fairly easy to implement those changes as we were required to. But when you consider the fact that farming, you know, farming's a big part of what we do, but we also have our own house brand of products. And we've we, we're not product giants. I know I won't ever be because that's not my desire. You know, we're really passionate about the farming side, but the product line was started out of a call from friends and family that wanted to get their hands on hemp that we grow. They like knowing the, the story, the origin of, of their products, the same way they care about the, their produce. They, they want to go get it from the farm. So um, because how our product line was built has made it hard in the time of COVID because a lot of our sales and advertising and just simply the education piece to it too is done in person. Um, we're very active in our community. We go to festivals and markets and all of a sudden, all of that went away. We were no longer at farmer's markets. I think, you know, we did have a couple weeks where we were able to do it, but but the setting and the flow of traffic and everything was very different. So we definitely felt a hit in our sales. And then when you consider that impact on my brand, knowing that we provide so much hemp derivatives to the marketplace through large lots, through extractors and processors, that operate on a much scale, much larger scale than, than, than we do even. And then they spin ingredients from our farm out into the marketplace and to fueling these other brands. Um, you know, are they competitors to my brand? Yes, I guess you could say, but it's, it's from my farm too. So I consider it a win when a good brand does well. Um, so those brands, they were facing the same problems I was just on a larger scale, you know, they're, they're going to festivals and markets, but they're going to the big ones, <laughs> you know, um, their reach mm -hmm. is much larger than mine is. So compound that. Um, and, and it's, it's created issues industry-wide. I can believe it. Yeah. It's, it's been crazy to see how people continue to adapt and especially kind of farming in the ag industry. I mean, people have been adapting. I've seen so many people delivering straight con straight to consumers instead of restaurants or distribution companies and stuff like that. So it's been a crazy time. Uh, so last yeah. question, last question. What are some of the biggest, um, what are some of the biggest misconceptions that you see consumers might have about hemp production. I know you said that some people thought it was regular marijuana when they were growing it. And I feel like more and more people are kind of getting used to the idea. So as a hemp producer, what do you see as kind of the biggest misconceptions that consumers have right now? I think consumers, um, and, and it might not even be a misconception, um, but consumers, I think, fear that there are bad CBD products on the market that are ineffective, that are out of compliance. And so when I say I don't know if it's a misconception, it's because I, I know that there's out of compliant products on the market. Um, but I also think the misconception then lies in the fact that you can't group us all together as an industry yet because there's, there's a whole lot of us doing great things and doing the right thing by the consumer, because ultimately that's what we work so hard for. It's not 
because we want another job. <laughs> you know, the last thing we needed when we started farming hemp was another job. And um, we do it because we want it. We want to help people because we see the promise in this plant and we see and trust the science coming out of these different studies going on at the university level. So I think customers just worry, what am I getting? Is it safe? It, you know, is it sound? Is it going to help me or is it going to be a, a gross waste of my money? And that's why we need more more regulation, because we need to gain consumer confidence. Um, and I think we're getting closer. I really do. You know, I I'm I probably sound so down in the dumps about it, but it's only because <laughs> it's frustrating. We just sometimes the loudest voices in an industry are those, you know, with the wrong message. And, and that's a big reason why I started my social media account is, is to tell our story um, because I'm not always happy with the story being told elsewhere. Right. And um, I think social media gets a lot of, a lot of bad rap, but one good thing is that it's allowing farmers and ranchers to kind of get their message out there and showcase what's going on. And it's very interesting. I, I can't wait to see what else happens in the hip industry because it's still so new thanks to the farm bill a few years ago. So it's going to be very interesting to kind of see where that wave goes. And I mean, you guys have been there since the beginning, so I'm sure you're eager to kind of see it improve as well. Um, yeah. Well, Alex, this has been super fun talking about talking with you, um, your farm and hemp production, all that good stuff. If people want to follow you and see your awesome social media account and kind of follow the story that you're doing, where can they go? You can find me on Instagram at the hemp farmer's wife. And then you can also read more about our operation and what we're all about at coloradohempsolutions.com. All right. Well, Alex, thanks again and best of luck to you guys. Hope it continues to go well and we'll have to touch base with you soon. Thanks, Trevor. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Um, yeah. You've made it all the way to the end of the show. It's 50 minutes in. You listen to the whole thing. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Alex. Now, it's time for you to do two things. Of course, go check out Alex at The Hemp Farmer's Wife um, on Instagram. And also, go in the description of this podcast episode, whatever you might be listening on, whether it's Spotify, Apple, CastBox, whatever. Go to the description. I'll wait for you to do it. All right. Now click on solo.to slash farmtraveler. And email me. Let me know what you'd like to learn about, who are some of your favorite guests, who you'd like to have on, or maybe you want to come on the show and tell us a thing or two about food and farming. So yeah, thank you so much, and guess what? We'll see you next week. Okay, bye.